right, will you please take the word of God with me and uh, turn to the book of Acts and uh, chapter 24. Acts chapter 24, uh, we're going to begin reading. Uh, we're going to read here the chapter in just a moment. And we're looking at those last chapters and Paul has been imprisoned. Uh, we uh, noted that this is unjust. It is unfair. In this particular chapter, after he appeared uh, before the Sanhedrin Council, um, there was a conspiracy against the life of Paul. Some uh, 40 men made a commitment to uh, kill Paul. And when the chief captain became aware of that, he uh, sent Paul over to the charge of Felix, uh, the governor. And uh, this uh, 24th chapter is a record of uh, Paul standing before Felix and the council of the Jews with a representative standing before Felix and uh, just arguing. Uh, it's a, really a courtroom setting. And it's interesting to see what happens actually in this chapter. There's some wonderful things we learn about, for example, uh, uh, advocacy, defense. Uh, there's a prosecution and there's a defense. Paul's his own defense. And at the end, Felix is the judge. Although he was the governor, he also was the judge. And to see what happens in this chapter. But we know as we read through all of those things, I appreciate seeing Paul interacting uh, in the book of Acts. Actually, the majority of the book of Acts is the the ministry of church planting, of evangelism. But Paul here is constrained. He cannot, uh, per se, go to a city, preach the gospel, establish a church, ordain elders in every church, and teach people. Uh, he's not able to do that, but it's interesting to see how he speaks and how he interacts as a Christian. And there's a sense that we can appreciate those last chapters in Acts because we may say, well, I am not a church planter or I'm not a preacher, but we are all Christians. And we learn some interactions as Christians and how we can act and how we can respond, specifically when we are dealing with unjust situations. Unjust situations. That's where Paul uh, finds himself. And so we're going to begin reading here Acts 24. Um, if you're able, have the ability to stand, I would uh, encourage you to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're not able, I understand. Uh, but I want us to read here. This is the Word of God. And we want to stand out of reverence for God and His Word. Acts 24, verse 1, the Word of God says, And after five days, Ananias, the high priest, descended with the elders and with a certain orator named Tertullus, who informed the governor against Paul. And when he was called forth, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us of thy clemency a few words. For we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition, sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes who also hath gone about to profane the temple whom we took and would have judged according to our law. But the chief captain, Lysias, 
came upon us and with great violence took him away out of our hands. That's not how I remember it. (laughs) Commanding his accusers to come unto thee by examining of whom thyself mayest take knowledge of all these things whereof we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, saying that these things were so. Then Paul, after that he, uh, the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, For as much as I know that thou hast been of many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Uh, because thou mayest understand that there are yet but twelve days since I went up to Jerusalem for to worship. And they neither found me in the temple, disputing with any man, neither raising up the people, neither in the synagogues nor in the city, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Just so we know, this is a courtroom setting. That's a pretty big statement. But this I confess unto thee, that after the way which they call heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. And have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. And herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men. Now after many years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude nor with tumult who ought to have been here before thee and object if they had ought against me. Uh, he says here, there's, there's no witnesses. Where are the witnesses? Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice, that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. And when Felix heard these things, having more perfect knowledge of that way, He deferred them and said, When Lysias, the chief captain, shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And he commanded a centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty, and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister or come unto him. And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, uh, Dursula, which was a Jewess, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. And as he reasoned of righteousness... Temperance and judgment to come, Felix trembled and answered, Go thy way for this time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee. He hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might lose him. Wherefore he sent for him the oftener and communed with him. But after two years, Proceus, Festus, came into Felix's room and Felix, that means he, Festus, replaced Felix in the capacity of governor. Willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. I want to bring your attention to verse 15. Paul, in the midst of this, says, I have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and unjust. Now, certainly the application here is Paul is talking about where the disagreement is. But I think that we can make the application both of what Paul stood for and the doctrine he stood for, but also the situation that he is in is about there are some people who are just and unjust. 
And so I want to preach uh, this morning on the just and the unjust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for Paul, not only his ministry, but also his testimony as he deals with an unjust situation. Help us to have the same responses, to be yielded to your spirit, and as he claims and, and asserts, that we may also exercise ourselves to have always a conscience that is void of offense toward God and toward men. And so we pray that you would teach us from your word this morning, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. It's very simple. In this chapter, we're going to look at three aspects of this chapter. The first part is really the accusation against Paul, and it's going to come by the mouth of Tertullus, uh, who was appointed by the Jews, the Sanhedrin Council, to bring the accusation against Paul before the judge, who at that time was the governor, Felix. The second part of the chapter is the advocacy of Paul. Uh, Paul is, uh, in the sense, he is his own lawyer. He represents himself, and he stands against the accusation, and he makes a number of arguments against the accusation. And thirdly, we have the adjournment, and that is Felix, who is the judge, the governor, is going to adjourn and basically say, I'm going to hear the matter at a later time. And later he brings uh, Paul back, who Paul testifies of Christ uh, before uh, Felix. And an amazing scene is going to happen. Felix is going to tremble. The only thing we can deduce from that is that he was in fear at that moment as uh, Paul, by the way, a, the most powerful man in that region, is going to tremble before a prisoner. How can that be? because of his witness. And we're going to find that at the end, Paul is going to be left in prison, forgotten. And we may say again, forgotten of men, but not forgotten of God. Let me emphasize this. Paul is exactly where God wants him to be. Now, as difficult as that may be to hear, he is exactly where God wants him to be. By the end of this chapter, Paul is even going to refuse to pay the fine so that he could go free. Why? Because he's been treated unjustly. And it is not right for him to pay a fine for his release. He's done nothing wrong. But he is exactly where God wants him. I want to focus, first of all, as we look at this chapter, at the accusation against Paul. Now, uh, there's a number of things that we notice in this accusation, and we move through the text here rather quickly, but the first thing we note in verse 1 is that for the accusation here to be successful against Paul, they used a man skilled in speech in order to impress the governor. The first thing we know here as we open the text is as Ananias the high priest, uh, the man who was the highest authority in the Jewish system, the Sanhedrin Council, which would be the Jewish version of uh, conformity to the law, the high priest, Ananias, was the highest authority. He comes with the council and they evidently selected a man by the name of Tertullus. The Bible describes him as an orator. Now, that means that he, uh, he spoke, and the, the word orator means he was a speaker. And so evidently, whether he was a Jew or not, we don't know. The Bible doesn't say it. The Bible just describes, really, his trade. That's what he did for a living. He spoke. This was a man, uh, we might say today, who was trained in the art of speaking. Now, I speak all the time, but I haven't been trained in the art of speaking. All right? Uh, as a preacher, I just see what the Bible says. I read it, and I try to explain exactly what God says. And so, if you ask me to do any type of other speech, I couldn't do it. I, I, I'm not, uh, I had speech class, 
uh, when I was in high school, and I did a pretty awful job at that. But if I have uh, the things before me, it's quite easy. I just present them to you. I'm not an orator. I would say I'm a preacher and a teacher of the Word. But this is a gifted man, very gifted man. He, he was also most likely gifted in that area. We do not, because you can be trained, but if you don't have the gift of speaking, you're not going to be able to say anything. Uh, we do not know whether they hired the man or whether he volunteered himself or offered his service, but since the Scripture gives us this man's name and his skill, it seems obvious that they were attempting to impress the governor. Uh, based on their past behavior, by the way, evidently they've been in the wrong, they needed a man who was capable of speaking smoothly. They needed somehow somebody to impress, to uh, put blinders over the eyes of the governor so that they could get away with their behavior. By the way, you remember why Paul is there? Because there was a conspiracy against Paul. And Felix was made aware of that by the chief captain. And so he knows that the Jews have not treated the, with the situation unfairly. And so we see here, for this accusation to be successful, they used a man skilled in speech in order to impress the governor. But then as we move, we see verse 2 through 4. Uh, secondly, for the accusation to be successful, they used flattery in order to sway the governor. Now, before we read those words again, as we just read them a moment ago, uh, we have to know kind of the background between the Jews and the Romans. The Jews did not like the Romans. As a matter of fact, during the ministry of Jesus Christ, you see that very clearly, that they were not interested in the Messiah as a man who would come, as uh, God in the flesh who would come to save them from their sin. They wanted a Messiah to come and to redeem them from the Roman rule. The Roman bondage, not the bondage of sin and death. And so when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, there were several attempts, the Bible records in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to take Jesus by force and make him a king. They saw his miracles. They heard his speech. He spake as one having authority. And so they thought, here is our next king. Now when he came into Jerusalem, and they sang Hosanna and praise to the Messiah when they recognized that he was incoming as a soldier over the Roman government. Then just a few days later, they said, crucify him. They wanted somebody who could overthrow the Roman government. If you study the history around before the time of Christ, there had been several attempts by you might say, the Jewish aristocracy to overthrow the Roman government. Several attempts. And you could talk about the Maccabees and different groups of Jews. That was under the Grecian Empire and then under the Roman Empire. A lot of conflict. The Jews did not like the Romans. Have that in mind. Now let's look at the words of Tertullus to Felix. Verse 2. Tertullus began to accuse, uh, accuse him, Paul, saying... Now notice, here is, he begins the accusation of Paul saying this... Seeing that by thee we enjoy great... Well, that's not, he's not talking about Paul. He's addressing Felix. Seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness, and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness... <laughs> Notwithstanding that I be not further tedious unto thee, I pray thee that thou wouldest hear us 
of thy clemency a few words. And so before Tertullus here begins the accusation against Paul, he first begins by using flattery on Governor Felix. Now some would say that now that's just normal protocol in the courtroom. However, we know how the Jews regarded the Roman rule. They detested their subjection to the Roman government. They hated paying taxes to the Roman government. Uh, Yet these words carefully show us that the remarks were just too much because we know the context. You see, the Jews here, as Tertullus is saying those words, the Jews don't believe any of those words. We even take note of the gross overstating of the use of the words. If you notice the verses, he says, we, they don't say, we enjoy quietness. He says, we enjoy great quietness. He doesn't say, well, your worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. He says, very worthy deeds are done. He doesn't say, we accept it always. Uh, we, we accept it, uh, your rule. He says, we accept it always. What? And then they call Felix, not just Felix, Governor Felix, they most, not just noble, but most noble. And then they not just say with thankfulness, they say with all thank. Do you notice the gross exaggeration? I would uh, call those words great, very, always, most, all. This is a gross overstating uh, with those words. There is a difference between flattery and compliments. Or we might say respect. At times it may be difficult to discern between the two. Flattery is defined as this, false praise. Uh, Commendation bestowed for the purpose of gaining favor and influence or to accomplish some purpose. Now on the other hand, compliment is defined as this, an expression of civility, respect, or regard. To praise, to esteem, to respect. And so what we find in our text is not compliments. It's flattery. False praise. We know that the Jews did not esteem the Roman government. Nor did they, do you think when the Sanhedrin Council got together, they talked about how wonderful the Roman government was? Not at all. You see, they would never privately praise the Roman government, but here they do so in a public fashion. You see, flattery is often overcompensation to hide some selfish evil intent. That's what flattery is. It's overcompensation to hide some selfish evil intent. This is especially true here when we know the context of these words. We also know that the Sanhedrin Council had been in the wrong in their treatment of Paul. Tertullus is about to speak lies about Paul. And so therefore, Tertullus uses flattery towards Felix to influence or to sway the, judge, the, 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 the governor's judgment. So, we see here that in order for the accusation to be successful, uh, they used a man skilled in speech to impress the governor. They used flattery in order to sway the governor. But thirdly, we see that they used falsehoods in order to deceive the governor. Uh, do you notice verse 5? He goes in really from verse 5 to verse 9. We have a number of falsehoods. And let me give them to you in the order in which we find them. First of all, uh, he accused Paul of extensive sedition against Rome. Now, by the way, that was the classic accusation. Remember, that was the accusation against Jesus Christ. 
It was the accusation against Peter when he preached. It was the accusation now against Paul. Now, they used that. Uh, for them, the offense was what they referred to as blasphemy, but they're standing before Felix. And something that the Romans are very concerned about is sedition. And, by the way, at that time, the known world uh, was under Roman control. And so when you think about that, though, when you refer to the whole world, uh, they were thinking here, we have to have in mind the Roman world. All the countries, whether it was Greece or even all of the northern African countries uh, and Israel and much of uh, the, the east part there uh, used to be the uh, Babylonian Empire, all of that was on, under Roman control. And they were, subject, they were subject to the Roman rule. And they pay taxes to the Roman. And so all throughout the land, all throughout the world at that time, there would be seditions, attempt at sedition against the Roman government. And so the Romans were very concerned about that. And so that's why they make that accusation against Paul. Uh, and they speak of it, notice they said, he is a mover of sedition among all the Jews, here it is, throughout the world. Wow, well, that's quite extensive, isn't it? That's the accusation against Paul. Ex extensive sedition against Rome. That's accusation number one. By the way, he, we, we have the record of what he did, where he went. There is not once uh, any attempt at sedition. Not once. Uh, sedition would be to undermine the Roman government in order to overthrow the Roman government. You not, do not want find one word. Actually, if you read Romans chapter 13, you'd find that he said quite the opposite before this happens. Be in subjection unto rulers and governors. He even said, pay your taxes. Nobody likes to pay your taxes, but he said, pay your taxes. That's what he said. So he accused Paul of extensive sedition against Rome. Not true. The second accusation is that he accused Paul of being in charge of an elaborate sect. Uh, notice with me, he says he is, uh, they accuse uh, Paul of being at the end of verse 5, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, uh, the idea here is that uh, he is the ringleader. He is in charge. He is at the head of this elaborate sect of the Nazarene that we find throughout the world. Now, obviously, Paul was not part of a sect. He was not a sectarian. He believed God and he believed his word. But they portray him as some man standing behind the shadows, uh, orchestrating sedition, being a leader and doing things behind the scene. And we finally caught him in the open. That's not what Paul was. He actually was pretty open. Everywhere he went, he preached publicly. He's not a dark figure behind the scenes. So he accused Paul of being in charge of some elaborate sect. And then, uh, thirdly, he accused Paul of egregious desecration against the temple. Uh, notice he says in verse 6, who also hath gone about to profane uh, the temple. As a matter of fact, you read through the book of Acts, you don't find one mention of uh, desecrating the temple or profaning to the, the temple. As a matter of fact, where had Paul been found? He had been found in the temple purifying himself. You found nothing but respect and reverence for the temple. And uh, when you find Paul, uh, he, he did say uh, things to the idea that, well, God cannot be contained by the, in this temple. W but they, were, they should know that to be true, the Jews. They have the Old Testament. Solomon said that. 
David said that. Uh, there are many people who said that. So he's not saying anything new at all. But they accuse Paul of some egregious desecration against the temple. Now remember how this whole, start, the whole thing started. They said, or they had supposed that he had brought Gentiles into the temple where he was not allowed. Well, we know that didn't happen. It, they supposed it had happened. It did not happen at all. Then we see that he accused the chief captain of, uh, this, is, this is the worst perhaps, he accused the chief captain of extreme violence. <laughs> Notice with me verse 7. Here, here's what Tertullus says. But the chief captain, Lysias, came upon us and with great violence took, away out, uh, took him away out of our hands. What? Great violence? Uh, I, I remember differently. I remember a difference. Do you remember? He was in the temple, and then the mob came, came to be. And so when he goes into the temple, the people, the Bible says, they were going to kill him. They were beating him. They took him out of the temple. There was a mob. The chief captain wasn't violent. They were violent. But somehow he has said, well, the Romans have intervened. Your Roman soldiers have intervened. Now, by the way, that's an assassination of the character of the chief captain, Lysias. He just intervened. He saved Paul's life. And when there was a conspiracy, who were the violent ones? It was not the Romans who were trying to secretly kill Paul. It was the Jews. So he accused the chief captain of extreme violence. And so for the accusation to be successful, they used falsehoods in order to deceive the governor. They used flattery in order to sway the governor. And they used a man skilled in speech in order to impress the governor. But here's the wonderful thing. When you have truth on your side, you don't need any of those things. And so now we go from the accusation now to the advocacy. And here how Paul advocates for himself. And let me summarize basically what Paul says in the order in which we find it. First of all, here's the advocacy for Paul. First of all, he says, there is no proof. Now, the proof of what? Of the accusation that I'm profaning the temple. That I am the orchestrator of sedition against the Roman government. Uh, none of that is true. Notice verse 13. He says, neither can they prove the things whereof they now accuse me. Well, that's pretty strong argument. I mean, if you're in a courtroom today and you say to the judge, they can't prove it, that's it. Case closed. You can't prove it. Notice he also says, verse 14 and 15, I am guilty of believing differently. That's the extent of what he is guilty of. That's what he says. Notice verse, verse 14. But this I confess, here is where you could say, here's where I've gone wrong. Here's why I'm being judged, not because of sedition, not because I'm inciting a mob, not because I'm trying to overthrow the government, not because I'm trying to disagree the temple. Here is what I'm confessing to. I'm confessing that after the way which they call her heresy, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets, and have hope toward God, which they themselves also allow, that there shall be a resurrection of the, uh, both of the, uh, of the dead, both of the just and unjust. You know why they hated Paul? Because he believed differently than they did. That's it. Not because he was an insider. Not because he was blaspheming against the temple. Not because he was trying to raise up sedition. Not because he was some dark figure in the background orchestrating uh, some sect against the Jews. No. 
he says, I'll confess to this, I believe different. Now, as much as I would spend a lot of time on this, he says, here's what I believe. I believe in the resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. Now, he doesn't elaborate on that, but if you look at the preaching of the Apostle Paul, and you, we know the, the Bible and what the Bible teaches, uh, we know that the Bible teaches about the resurrection. And that there is a resurrection both of the just and of the unjust. And let me just establish here the difference between the just and the unjust. Because there is a difference between the resurrection of the just and of the unjust. Uh, we might uh, think about two types of judgments. We know that for those who are in Christ, those who are believers, those whose sins have been forgiven, there's going to be a resurrection. We know that there is also the sense of uh, the fact that we're going to stand as believers at the judgment seat of Christ. As believers, we're going to give an account of our work, of, of what sort it is, and, and certainly we're going to give an account to God, to God for those things. But there's also uh, an, a resurrection of the unjust, so in a sense an accountability or a judgment that is coming for those who are outside of Christ, who are not in Christ, and that would be referred to as the great white throne judgment. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that um, uh, God will raise the dead and death and hell will be raised and stand before God at the great white throne judgment or those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. So the question here we have uh, just very quickly is, well, who is the just and the unjust? And how can we be part of the resurrection of the just and not the resurrection of the unjust? Well, I think about one verse. 1 Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also hath once suffered the just for the unjust that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. You see, how is it uh, that somebody can be part of the resurrection of the just. We know the Bible declares very clearly that there is none righteous. Uh, the word just means righteous. That's another word for just, righteous. To have is always done right. To be in good standing. And here we're talking about being in good standing with God. Well, we know that we've all sinned against God, that we are, none of us are just, none of us are righteous. If we stand before the law of God that we're guilty, we cannot be justified. We would be guilty and we would be condemned. We are completely unjust. But here's the wonderful news about Jesus Christ, about the cross, is that Jesus Christ, the Bible says, uh, became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And so the Bible says that Jesus Christ, when He suffered on the cross, He suffered, notice, for sins. That's 1 Peter 3.18. And Jesus Christ, He was just. We are unjust. And so Jesus Christ, who was just, He suffered for sins for the unjust. That he might do what? That he might bring the unjust to God. The, the unjust somehow has to be made just. How does that happen? Well, Romans chapter 4 tells us. It happens by imputation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, thou shalt be saved. It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. 
By faith, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, that He took your sins upon Himself, that He became sin for you. He who knew no sin, He who was just, He took your sin, you who were unjust, and He suffered for your sins. That's what Jesus Christ did. The just for the unjust, that He might what? Bring us to God. You see, none of us are just. We can never be just enough. We are Why? Because there is sin and wickedness in our lives. And so how can we be made just? All of that has to be cleansed. It has to be washed away, and we can be made righteous in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. That's what God did. That's the difference in doctrine. Because the Jews of that day... Let's just think about just the Pharisees. They believed and taught of the resurrection. But they believed that the resurrection of the just was for them, for the good. They thought themselves to be righteous, but Jesus Christ came and He said what? I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, the trouble with the Pharisees, they thought they were just when they weren't. The trouble with the world is still the same today. They think they need no Christ because they think themselves to be just. There is erection of the just and on the unjust. Let me ask you this question. Are you just this morning? And when I say that, there should not be one ounce of worthiness in your mind and in your heart to think, oh yeah, I'm just because I've, I've lived a good life. Oh no, you are not. Just as I am, you are a sinner under the wrath of God and the only way you can be made just is in Jesus Christ. That's the only way. That's the only way to be just. Not through our righteousness, but through His righteousness. So, that's what he's guilty of believing. So there's no proof for their accusation. He's only guilty of believing differently. And then he also says in verse 16 and 17, he basically says, I have a good testimony actually. Now that's not him boasting. It's him just simply declaring his record wherever he's went. He says in verse 16, you can sum up that record, and, and herein do I exercise myself to have always a conscience that is void of offense toward God and toward men. Uh, he mentions in verse 17, Now after many years I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Now, remember, Paul had written it about that. He had traveled through Macedonia and Achaia. He had raised funds for the poor believers in Jerusalem. That's why he had come to Jerusalem, to help the poor. And everybody in the church knows it. Perhaps even the Jews know it. That he came with a large sum of money from churches all throughout Asia and all throughout Macedonia and Achaia and he brought the funds that the churches had given to the poor. That's why he came to Jerusalem. So he says, I have a good testimony. He also mentions here, it's interesting, in his defense, he says, there are no witnesses. Notice verse 18 and 19. Whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with multitude or with tumult. In other words, he says, now, when they found me, I was not doing anything against the temple. I was not bringing about sedition. What was I doing in the temple? Well, he was purifying himself. There was no tumult. There was no mob. There was no multitude that he was trying to uh, arouse. No, verse 19, who ought to have been here before thee uh, and object if they had ought against me. And so basically, here's what Paul says to Felix. Um, any witnesses? A anybody can stand against me and say... Here is what he was doing. Where are the witnesses? That's pretty good. He said, there's no proof and there are no witnesses. Now, before a judge, that would be pretty heavy. No proof and no witnesses. But then, he mentions lastly, 
verse 20 and 21, that I am hated not for evil deeds, but for my voice. Notice verse 20. Or else let these same here say, if they have found any evil doing in me while I stood before the council, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them. Touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called in question by you this day. Here's what Paul says. I am hated and I'm standing here today not because of any evil deeds that I've done, but because of my voice. Now at that time, under the Roman rule, as much as it was an oppression, uh, they enjoyed to a certain extent the freedom of speech. It was not unlawful for, for Peter to preach. He could preach anywhere he wanted. By the way, he was always also a Roman citizen. He enjoyed freedoms and rights that other people in that area did not enjoy. And so he had that freedom of speech. And so he says, I'm not hated for any deed that I've done, evil deed. I am hated for my voice. And by the way, Christians have always been hated, not for their evil deeds, although they are accused of, but for their voice. That's true. If you go throughout church history, they're always accused of some evil deed, nefarious thing that they've done, and ultimately it goes come, come back down to what? Their voice. We have a problem with their voice. Now let me say this. In the United States of America, as long as we enjoy freedom of speech, let's proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as much as we have breath. Why? Because, by the way, when, if persecution is to come, we will not be silent. If they say, you can't preach the gospel anymore, we will continue to preach the gospel. If they say, you can't preach against these types of sins anymore, we will continue to preach against those sins. Why? Because the Word of God teaches it. Now, when that comes, it'll be harder to do it. But we will still do it. But why we, while we have the freedom, why would we be silent? What are we waiting for to witness? For, e, for, for persecution? Why do we not do it when we are at ease? So here is his advocacy. We see the accusation, the advocacy, but lastly we see the adjournment. And so verse 22, Felix, he hears those things. He has a perfect understanding, a more perfect knowledge, he says. Uh, and so he basically waits. He's, he's going to uh, wait for Lysias, the chief, to come to come down. And basically he's going to hear from Lysias about how those things went. And by the way, Lysias is probably going to confirm, confirm what Paul said. So now they're going to be in trouble. The Jews are going to be in trouble. And so the, the meeting is adjourned for a later time. Um, he says... When Lysias, the chief priest, verse 22, 23, the chief captain shall come down, I will know the uttermost of your matter. And here as we end with thing, these three things in this adjournment, we see that Paul is going to be remanded to the centurion in verse 23, and he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and that he should forbid none of his acquaintance to minister uh, or come unto him. And so we might say he's in house arrest. He's not in a cell, per se, where no one can come in and out. He's more of in a house arrest situation up there in Caesarea. Up there, it's called down because Jerusalem was up on the hill, but it's northward. And so he's staying up there in some house arrest fashion. People can come in and out at will, but the centurion is still keeping an eye on Paul. So it's not official prison, but he's going to be in that condition. By the end of the chapter, it says for two years. And so he is remanded to the centurion. But then we see something interesting. Paul has an opportunity to reason before Felix in verse 24 and 25. 
And after certain days, when Felix came with his wife, Dursula, which was a Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. Now that's specific, isn't it? He didn't say, I, I want to hear more about the matter of the conflict between the Jews and, the, and your, what you're preaching. No, he says, I want to hear more about your faith in Christ. Wow. What does verse 25 says? And he reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. Now, that's a summary. We know what Paul did. He preached Jesus Christ. But here's how you summarize that. Righteousness. Well, righteousness would be, how is a man made righteous? How is a man justified? How can a man be made righteous? And then he talks about temperance. Uh, and the, the word temperance really means um, self-control. The, the ability to, um, when you, your flesh wants to do something, to say, well, I'm not going to do this wrong thing. I'm going to exercise temperance. I'm going to exercise self-control. And then he speaks of judgment to come. And judgment to come means condemnation, and we might say damnation. That's what Peter reasoned with Felix about. Here is how a man can be made righteous, how a man can be justified. Why is that important? Because judgment is to come. So Felix, you need to exercise uh, self-control and you need to recognize that this life is not all there is. That there is more to this life than what you see. There's judgment to come. And notice at that, Felix, the Bible says, trembled. Now, it would not be a common thing for a governor who is in the position of the judge to tremble before a prisoner, but he does. Why? Because there's something about the message that began to work in his soul. I think we'll see a little later, King Agrippa. What did he say? Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. In other words, there's, a, there's a, the truth that comes down in the heart and they're convicted and he trembles as if this is true, I'm in trouble. And many people may be in that position. If this is true, I'm in trouble. But often they will not make the decision even though the Holy Spirit is knocking on their door, even they hear the truth, they even tremble at the truth. But they refuse to accept it. So we see here, Paul is remanded to the, is remanded to the centurion. He reasons before Felix. But lastly, we see Paul's refusal to pay a fine. Now, why do we have all those details? God gives us those details, verse 26. And he, that's Felix, he, verse 26, hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, that he might loose him. Wherefore he sent for him and the oftener and communed with him. The oftener would be the one who would stand as kind of the mediator between Felix and Paul. And he would come and says, hey, Felix said that if you want to go and be free, you just have to pay this sum of money. He would be the one standing for Felix asking for, here is the money that you need to pay. And he was talking back and forth. The Bible says he was communing. So they were talking and they were going back and forth. He said, all right, Felix says, if you just pay this amount, then you can go free. And basically, notice the language. The Bible doesn't say that Paul said no, but the Bible says that Felix, verse 20, says, he hoped also that money should have been given. You know what that means? Paul didn't give it. Felix hoped that Paul would submit himself, we might say pay the fine, and go free. And Paul says, I'm not paying the fine. Now, why would he not pay the fine? I'll tell you why. Because he has done nothing wrong. 
to pay the fine would be for him to admit that he's done something wrong and he cannot do it. Well, wait a minute. He can go free. He can continue his ministry. He is not going to do something that his conscience says, you can't do it. Now, notice earlier he says, I've exercised myself. Verse 16, to have always a conscience that is void of offense toward God and toward men. And in a sense, by the way, he's been testifying before Felix. And so he says, "I, I, I cannot admit to pay the fine would be to say that I've done wrong. And I just can't do that. Now, some people might be critical and say, well, here again, Paul had an opportunity. He was warned that if he went to Jerusalem, he would be in prison. And he didn't listen. He is in the wrong. Well, here, God had an opportunity for him, and he didn't take it. No, 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 no. All those commentators are wrong. He's exactly in the will of God. He's not going to admit he's wrong because he is not wrong. He's a principled man. What does that bring him to his life to be a principled man? Two years in the same condition for choosing to do right. What would we rather do? What do we, what would, what do we desire more in our lives? To be, to have a convenient life or to have a conscience that is void of offense toward God and toward men? That's a choice we make all the time. We make choices and we say, all right, what, what, what am I choosing here? Am I choosing convenience? What, what I want, ease? Or am I choosing what is right? And Paul's going to choose what is right. But in the midst of that, I said, well, what, what makes this debate, how can he make makes this debate and how does he make, what helps him to make that choice? I think what helps him to make that choice, choice is that he has been testifying of Jesus Christ. So if he is willing to compromise, to play around, and to not have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward men, and to admit to something that he's not done, well, what does that do about his testimony about Jesus Christ? If he's no longer a principled man, how can people say, well, yeah, he has the truth, and he, he believes the truth, and that's the truth. And notice, his character speaks to the truth. You see, he refused to pay a fine. And what did I bring him? Verse 27, But after two years, Perseus, Festus, came into Felix's room, and Felix, willing to show the Jews a pleasure, left Paul bound. <laughs> you see know those words? Willing to please the Jews, he left Paul bound. So new governor, here's what happened. New, new governor comes in, the Jews probably sent emissaries. Maybe they sent Tertullus again. Say, hey, here's what we have. And Festus, in order to please... Nah, he's not doing what is right. He's doing something in order to please the Jews. New governor, got to compromise, got to play around, we got to win some people on my team. The Sanhedrin Council would be a powerful entity to be associated with at that time. So let's forget about this one man. It's unjust. Look at all the injustice against Paul. Does it seem that Paul is disturbed by any of it? No, he's not. He's not at all. We're going to find that when he appears before Festus and appeals to Caesar. But let's ask the Lord to help us. I think that Paul guarded his testimony so closely 
because he was a man who consistently testified of the gospel. And he didn't want at any point for his character to be marred so that he would be inhibited from preaching the gospel to the lost.